My name is David. I'm an alcoholic. I can't believe so many of you are here. Isn't this great? It was a hooted breakfast this morning. We did, by the way, there were a couple of people who got into a discussion. It was like a, a goat roping. It was really interesting. It was a kind of a goat roping thing. The other thing is one person was eating like a butcher's bulldog. I tell you, it was absolutely unbelievable. We had one pickle. It was a personal pickle, but it didn't turn into a goat roping. Nor did they turn into a corporate pickle, and it was resolved pretty quick with Peggy coming up this morning. I learned all that at breakfast. I had no idea why I was coming to Maryland, but I learned it all at breakfast this morning. And Annie, I want to thank you for all the lingo that you brought me from southeast Louisiana, or southwest Louisiana, excuse me, southwest Louisiana. If y'all want a treat, just meet Annie, and she will give you all kinds of new language. I want to thank Dan, and I certainly want to thank Rob. Y'all have been so great to uh, meet me, and, and I, again, apologize, Dan, truly. It's, I'm on the road all the time, and it's very difficult, but uh, I do appreciate your, your faithfulness and your continuing to, uh, to reach out. I also want to thank Kate, who the program committee, and I'm trying to find her right here, and thank you for uh, your, your original invitation some time ago. I also want to thank uh, Nancy, uh, the chair, and also... Uh, all the work the committee has done. <clears throat> and the uh, committee, I really appreciate it. I looked at the program last night and I thought, my gosh, this is a lot of organization. It is amazing what you uh, come together with here, and I really congratulate you. And thank you for your hospitality. I want to talk to you about a whole concept of, uh, of, of something that I, I had no idea that I had. You know, I never knew I had a disease. I really didn't. I know what a disease is. I've seen people with other diseases. But when I got to treatment, about 11 years and a few months ago, what I found was they told me the third day I was in this treatment center that I had a disease called alcoholism. And I looked at my counselor and I said, well, if I have a disease called alcoholism, I caught it here because I didn't have it when I came here. <clears throat> I said, it must have been that guy in room 225. Bad case of it. I mean, nobody would go around it. I mean, it must have been a bad case and I must have caught it. I didn't have a disease. You know what I'm saying? I just had a little problem, Olivia. Just a little problem. Just okay, a couple of... I was in a pickle is what I was in, Annie. <laughs> just a little uh, just a little pickle. You know what I mean? I just had a few problems. If I could just get my life straightened out. You, have, you know what I'm saying? I came within ten minutes and two beers of having my life figured out numerous times. You know what I'm saying? It was... <laughs> Just, you know, just a couple more beers. I mean, just give me ten more minutes. In fact, I would take uh, napkins, you know, little, little napkins on the bar stool area. And, you know, in that case, so they're wet on one corner. What's the problem with that? And I'd start writing out answers to my life. Do you know what I'm saying? Answers. You know, I just, I'm, I almost had it. I was that close to figuring it out. You know? And I would come to the next morning and I'd take my little notes out and I'd go, I wrote some award-winning songs on those napkins. Excellent poetry and some great letters. Great letters. I had it figured out almost. So when I got to treatment, I wasn't sick. I just needed to figure it out. You know, lose a little weight, gain a little weight, depending on what age I was, depending on what I need to do there. Buy more clothes, get rid of the clothes. You know what I'm saying? It was just get friends, no friends. Uh, get a job, don't have a job. I, every, buy another car, this car wasn't going to work. That's what my life was like. Just need to be a little better. You know, just, just couldn't quite make it. You've got a disease. <laughs> sure. I left there after three months. I was supposed to be there for 28 days. <laughs> I think the concept of some are sicker than others comes into play here. It's the great fact. But after I, as I was leaving, Claire, my wonderful counselor, looked at me and she said, Do you know that you've got a disease? And you know what I did? I smiled and said, I sure do. And you know what? I lied to her. I figured if I told her I didn't have one, she wouldn't let me leave. And I'd been there long enough. But you know what? I didn't believe it then. And I think this is the point. <clears throat> if I do not know I have a disease, you know what? I am. I'm pretty powerful. In fact, if I'm powerful, I don't need these meetings. I don't need a sponsor. I certainly don't need 12 steps in my life. You see, if I've got a disease, I'm powerless, which means I don't have the answers. I don't know what I need to do. And I don't know how to do it. And I think that's the important thing for me. Because, see, as long as I'm, I know I have a disease, as long as I know I don't have the answers, I can recall my moment of clarity. My moment of clarity on April the 4th, 1988, when I saw me for one of the first times in my life. 
I saw what I was doing to me and to my family and to people around me. I saw this person that I had built so much of a wall around that I couldn't see myself. You know, somebody said to, you, to me, "How did you get to where you were at 40? <clears throat> How did you get into treatment? How did you?" I said, "I fed myself a lot of fictitious information. Not just a bunch. I told you I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't need anything. I don't need anybody." I told you I was okay, even though I was dying inside. I was fine. You see, the thing about my disease, and I think there's a section in the big book that really talks about it on page 62. It says, selfishness, self-centeredness. We, that, we think, is the root of all of our troubles. Uh, fear. Hundreds of forms of fear. This whole concept of fear. Hundreds of forms of fear. Self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. Uh, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate, seemingly without provocation. But at some time in our past, we invariably find that we've made decisions based on self that come back to hurt us. And I think that really is a synopsis of my life, of my disease. This whole concept of, of dealing with hundreds of forms of fear. You know what my biggest fear was all my life? Was that you were going to find out I was afraid. You said, I'd just be fine. You know, just fine. In fact, I tell you, in North Carolina, we have developed fining to a fine art. <laughs> you know how it looks? It sounds like this too, by the way. When anybody walks within 10 feet of you, and see, when people would walk within 10 feet of me, I'd start doing like this. I'd start smiling and shaking my head. And Pat, I'm not even Japanese, but I'd just start shaking my head. And then these words have to come out. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? Well, I'm fine. Thank you. I'm fine. Are you okay? Well, I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Oh, I'm fine. Well, I'm fine. Are you okay? Anthony, you okay? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Really. I'm fine. That's fine. We perfected it to a fine art. And truly so. Fine. In fact, I would start saying things like this. Or, Are you okay? You know what I was really saying? I wasn't caring. I didn't care about you. I was caring. Am I okay with you? Am I okay with you? If you were not smiling when you left me, you found it very difficult to leave me. Because if you left me without smiling, it was about me. You know, it was my, something was wrong with me and you, and I had to fix that. And I'm fine. I just went through life fine. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of fear. Uh, am, I, am I? In fact, it was like this. It's like God called a meeting of all the eight-year-olds in the world and put us in a big stadium. And just before, by the way, he's going to tell us about how to grow up and how to go through puberty and how to date and how to get out of school and have a family and, and uh, go through life and work and have a successful, wonderful life and being fine. And just before he started telling us all those secrets, I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and so I left the stadium and went to the bathroom. And when I came back in from the bathroom, he was saying, God was saying, and now you know all there is to know about growing up. And everybody seemed to be pretty happy. So I just kind of blended back in on my seat. And just as I sat down, everybody left, got up to leave. And so I was walking out of the stadium. They were saying, don't you know about growing up, David, don't you? And I said, of course I do. I didn't know. You know about dating, don't you, David? I said, of course I do. I didn't know. I'd call a girl and say, she'd say, hello. And I'd go, I'd hang up. Then I'd call her back. Hello? I'd hang up. And that time I knew she knew who it was. Now catch that one. That was in the day long before the little numbers were available. Star 69 and all that. It wasn't there. We were in Temple 3462. But the point I'm making is a hundreds of forms I didn't know. But you know what I could not tell you? that I did not know. If I told you I did not know how to live, if I told you I did not know how to grow up, if I told you I did not know about this fear, if I told you I was afraid, you would not want me back. And my job was to get back. To get back. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. And see, I think self-delusion, my fear feeds my self-delusion, and I think it's a circular deal. I think my self-delusion feeds my fear. I don't know which came first, it's the chicken or the egg, but it's okay, whichever did is there. But the point I'm making is self-delusion works like this. I can sit in my office at 10 o'clock uh, on, on Tuesday morning. And people walking by my, my office, sticking their head in the door, coming into my office, they're saying things like, Good morning, David. How are you? And you know what I say? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. So glad to see you. Well, are you fine? We're fine. We had a little problem Monday, but we worked it out. Well, that's great. I'm glad you're fine. And my boss walks by. And I'll say, Good morning, Don. And he doesn't speak. Now, let me tell you what happens to me. It starts right here in the center of my brain. Right here. 
right here in the center, and it starts right here, and it's like a little upside-down pyramid. It's just like this. You've got to envision it. And the first thought, Joyce, is, wonder why I didn't speak. Second thought, he must be upset with me. There must be some kind of pickle going on. Third thought, he didn't like that report I handed him yesterday. He didn't like what I, my work. He's probably going to fire me. He's going to figure out after 21 years, I don't know what I'm doing here. Fourth thought, I bet that meeting this afternoon, he's going to fire me. Tell the clock, I'm fine. How are you? Tell the one, I'm fired. I haven't left my desk. Nobody's called me. And then I'll start a pyramid on top of a pyramid. I'll go, well, if he's going to fire me, I'll have to go down to Ray Avenue to an unemployment office and get an unemployment check. What if they won't give me one? Here comes the other pyramid. What if they won't give me an unemployment check? Ten o'clock, I'm sitting at my desk. I'm fired. How are you? Good morning. Ten o' one, I'm fired. Ten o' one and a half, I can't get an unemployment check. Can't feed my family. I'm gonna have to sell my car. I'm selling my car now. Got to get it. Call the newspaper. Get an ad in the paper. Got to sell my car. Well, I might as well go and put the house on the market. Got to call a relative. Nobody's walked in or called me. Now. Guess what will happen if anybody walks in in the process of that thinking and says to me, Good morning, David, how are you doing? I'll say, I'm fine, how are you? That's how finding works, folks. Finding's a cover for fear. I'm fine, I'm fine. That thinking. And it's, it's, in other words, it's like this. I wake up in the morning and I scratch. There's a little pimple here on my calf, my left calf. And I just scratch it. I get in the shower, scratch it a couple times. But, you know, dry off. I'm now sitting down to put my socks on. It's Tuesday at 7 o'clock, going to work. Nothing big deal. I look down, and there's this old red circle around this pimple now. Here it goes. Wonder what that is. It wasn't there yesterday. Feels like it's got a knot in it. It's certainly infected. I bet it's a tumor. If it's a tumor, they're going to cut my leg off right here. No, they'll cut it off above the knee, right? I'll need to get a prosthesis. Tuesday morning, I'm trying to get ready for a day for my day. I'm going to work. Having a wonderful day worried about a prosthesis. You know what I'm talking about? It's real stuff. I thought I only did it with bad stuff, but I was in the shower about nine years ago, and uh, I was humming a country and western tune one morning. I don't know why, because my life was going along pretty well at that time. <laughs> this country western tune was coming out anyway. I got out, I dried off. I'm shaving. The next conscious thought I had at the mirror was, where am I going to get a tour bus? A tour bus? But for those of you from southwest Louisiana, let me explain that. Let me take you back to my shower with me. I'm humming this country and western tune, thinking, hmm, that sounds pretty good. I bet if I practice, I could sing country and western music. Now, if I started singing country and western music, I could get a little couple of gigs around Fedville here and a little couple of places. And if we got a band together, we could practice and go out to Nashville, get a little bit bigger band. I could get an agent, sign a contract, sign a contract to go on tour, and I'll need a tour bus. Of course, it all makes sense. <laughs> Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. You know what? Do you know what? I had a, a hard time being present in my family. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I was doing on Friday night where we were supposed to be relaxed and everybody was having a good time the weekend started? you know what I was thinking about? What I got to do Monday? And what's going to happen Tuesday? And what's going to happen Wednesday? And what's going to happen next month when Thanksgiving happens? Is everybody with me? Over and over and over. I never was present. I was, I was at an AA meeting and the topic was, where's God? Nobody had lost him. But we were just talking about, where's God in our life? And this, this priest from Boston said a powerful thing. He said, God is in that thin membrane. That thin membrane between the past and the future called now. And you know what my self-delusion and my fear keep me from doing is living in the now. 
Never have been able to do that. Until I, you know what, what happened? I can tell you the day and I can tell you where I was. It happened to me. I lived in the now. It was March 22nd, 1966. I was at the Rascala Bar in Greenville, North Carolina, and I ordered my first drink of alcohol. It was a Pabst Blue Ribbon Tall. In fact, I ordered two of them. One after the other. And I drank those two beers. And you know what happened to me after that second Pabst? I didn't care about what happens tomorrow. I was really present. I didn't care. I, I, that thinking went away. That, that thinking process, that fear, that never ending, that uh of life turned into, I could tell jokes. I could dance. My feet were moving. I mean, I, there were people in there that needed me to share things with them in that bar. It was, I did not know how needy they were. You know? And I went around all night long just sharing things with them, you know, just talking to them and laughing and telling them a little joke, trying to cheer up their life a little bit. I stayed there as long as I could. Then they call it last call. And uh, they said I had to leave. And I said, oh, okay, well, can I come back? And I didn't know. I, I just didn't know if I had permission. They said, oh, of course, you can come back. Just bring your money and you can come back. So I went back. And, uh, and I, I had the second time. It was just as great as the first time. You know what I did for 22 years? I drank to get back to Greenville, March 22nd, 1966. That's all. I didn't want to get drunk. Well, sometimes I did. But most of the time, you know what I was trying to do? I was trying to get back to Greenville. I just want to get rid of this thinking. I want to get rid of this fear, this ball of fear in my gut. I just wanted to be okay. I just wanted to have fun. I just wanted to have a life. I wanted to be now. I just want to be now. I didn't want to be about the past. I didn't want to be about the future. I just want to be right now. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's all I did. The only problem is, I would start drinking. See, I didn't know I had a disease. I was just going to have fun. Just a couple of beers. What's the problem? I mean, a couple of, I'll watch a quarter of football Monday night. I'll be home. Not a problem. And then give me a couple more. I'll be home at halftime. And, and then a couple more. Okay, third quarter. They'll understand. They've probably already beaten by now. Well, okay. Last call? Are you sure? That was kind of a pattern. I didn't understand, I didn't understand it. I just was going to have a couple of beers. What's the problem with that? But you see, I didn't know I had a disease. I did not know when I drank alcohol it sets up an allergic reaction and I crave alcohol. I didn't know that. So I kept drinking. But I would drink to get back to Greenville and I could get almost there and I could see Greenville coming. I could feel Greenville coming and here it go, boom, right by me. And I was drunk again. And I didn't know why. Not a clue. Not a clue. Didn't know I was allergic to alcohol. Hundreds of forms of self-pity, self-seeking. Let me tell you about self-seeking. I was on the ground at 13, very important point in my life, August of my 13th year. I was laying on the ground. You know what I decided on the ground that day? That my mother, my father, my brother, my aunt's uncles, my sister, me, none of them were going to save me. That if I, and by the way, God was not. He had abandoned me. And you know what I decided? That if I was ever going to have a life, if I was ever going to survive getting off Garner Road, you know what I was going to have to do? I was going to have to do it myself. God was not going to help me. You see, this whole concept of looking at God in the third step, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, is I understood God. That past tense word, understood, really has always haunted me. Why not understand God? Understood God for me was as a child. As a child, you know how I would look at God? God was going to uh, come back. In fact, I would lay on my back, six, seven, eight, nine years old, fly my kites in the springtime. I would look at these beautiful clouds and these big clouds, and I make shapes. Here comes a dog, and here comes a here comes a sheep, and here comes a cat. And and I would just knew if I looked long and hard enough, you know what was going to happen? God was going to stick his head out and go, "Hi, Dave. How you doing?" And you know what I was going to say? "Oh, I'm fine, God. How are you doing?" He never did that, by the way. But you know what? That day, laying on the ground as my mother was kicking me, I knew. I knew that he was not going to help. You see, self-seeking to me is, is a whole process of developing for me uh, my defects of character. See, my defects of character are not defects. My defects of character are the way I survive. That's the way I live. You know? So when I came in, they said, you've got to let go of some of these things. It's just like, what do you mean? What, it's like, well, what was it in the, in the 12 and 12? Is, you know, there's nothing left but the donut hole, and the donut hole is not left. If I keep giving all this stuff back... What do you mean you got to give all this stuff up? You know, that's the way I live. In my pride, envy, greed, lust, sloth, uh, jealousy, fear, all those things. That's how I, those energize me. Self-seeking. Self-seeking. You know what my self-seeking looks like? You know what it feels like? It's when I'm so angry with my children. You know what I would do? I wouldn't look at them for two weeks to show them who's in charge. 
You know, they'd ask me for potatoes at the table, and I would get the potatoes almost to them, and I'd sit them on the table and not look at them. I'll show them who's in charge. That's self-seeking. Freedom from bondage of self. You see, I think for me, my disease is that. Bondage of self. And that's why I have to pray the third step prayer, because I don't know how to free myself. Self-seeking for me is survival. And what I'll never forget, someone told me in a meeting, this was so powerful, I was two years sober, and the person in the meeting looked at me and said, David, it's over. I said, it's over. (laughs) She said, yeah. I said, what's over? She said, your childhood is over. You're an adult. Oh. She said, you can go on with your life now. I said, oh. I didn't know that. Kept trying to relive it. Kept trying to fix it. Kept trying to make it right. Couldn't take it away. Hundreds of forms of uh, self-seeking, hundreds of forms of self-pity. I want to talk about that because I want to tell you that for me, self-pity is truly a real, real serious thing. I was talking with my son, Scott. I think Dan has talked with Scott some, and I know Rob has talked with Scott some. He's there, and I'm not. But... uh, Scott is uh, 20, almost 25 now, and uh, it took us eight years to start over in recovery. Uh, I don't know if you know what I mean by start over. Uh, with my son David, it took us about three months, which was a wonderful privilege. My son Scott and I took us eight years. Uh, I had to ask him to leave the home. Uh, just very, very angry. Um, sideways stuff. Everything was sideways. No trust. I mean, on and on and on. And Scott now and I have really, it's been an amazing process of healing in the last uh, three, three and a half years. And Scott helps run the company we have. And um, it's just an amazing process. But I, I had a, a situation happen Monday night. And I was talking with him about that. And I said to him, you know, forgive me. I talked to him Tuesday. I said, I need to ask you to make amends. I said, forgive me for being on my self-pity pot. That during the phone call, I said I, I had to give myself permission to get off it, get off the pot afterwards. It was just too late to call you back, but I'm sorry about that. And he said, Yeah, I could see a real change in you. I want to stay with that just a minute. You see, when I'm full of self pity, there's a real change in me. It is true, and the change in me is I become very self centered, very very self centered, and everything is about me, and everything you do is about trying to hurt me. And, and uh, everything that happened that night, he was trying to get me. He wasn't trying to get me. He was trying to help me. I couldn't see his help nor receive it because I was so full of self-centeredness. At that moment, at that moment, that night, a lot of it's fatigue, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, all those things, all those things. But I would suggest to me, to, for me that uh, when I was two, year, two and a half years sober, I called my sponsor one Friday night and I said, you know what, my, it was 9.30. He said, I said, you know what my boss said to me today? At 5 o'clock, he came by my office, and you know what he said to me? And he said, what? And I told him what he said to me. I said, you know, I can't believe this guy. And I was just going on and on and on. And he said, David, what time is it? I said, it's 9.30. He said, is that a.m. or p.m.? I said, it's p.m. He said, are you sure? I said, it's dark outside. He said, well, where are you standing? And I said, I'm in my house. He said, look down and tell me the color of the carpet. I'm on the phone. 43 years old. It's brown carpet. He said, you're in your den. I said, exactly. He said, David, uh, what time is it? I said, 9.30. He said, now, what time did your weekend start? The only weekend you have this year, the only time off you have this week, excuse me, to celebrate your work this week. What time did it start? I said, 5 o'clock. He said, well, let me ask you a question. How long are you going to choose to hold on to this? He said, now, maybe you can hold on to it all night and maybe hold on to it to 9 o'clock Saturday morning and just smash your whole Friday night up. Is that what you choose to do? I said, I don't have a choice. He said, yes, you do. He said, well, maybe if you try hard, you can hold on to it to 6 o'clock Saturday afternoon and mess up your whole Saturday. He said, of course, if you want to go, go for gusto, go for gusto and hold on to it to 10 o'clock Sunday morning and mess up your whole Saturday night and Sunday morning too. He said, you know, maybe that's what you want to do. He said, of course, if you really want to have a wonderful weekend like you did last weekend, you can just hold on to this uh, until 9 o'clock Monday morning. And he just, you know, mess up your whole weekend. He said, what are you going to choose to do? And I said... There's no choice, Keith. And then he said something very powerful. He said, David, what do you get out of being a victim? And you know what I said? I don't get anything, Keith. (laughs) It was a goat roping. That's what it was. (laughs) And you know what he said? He said, you must because you keep doing it to yourself. And he slammed the phone down. Well, I called him back. I said, we need to talk about this. And we have for a long time. 
You see, I acquired a way of living based on self-centeredness, bondage to self, bondage to self, that destroys the quality of my life. Not quantity. I've lived a wonderful quantity life. My quality is real suspect. Real suspect, you see. And I think that's, for me, this whole program. I think, for me, being able to move from the bondage of self is the critical nature of my disease. The bondage of self-centeredness, selfishness. I really believe that. Because when I am in that bondage, there's no way I can enjoy life. You know, in fact, you know what I have? I've determined, and so what Keith and I have done, we've inventoried being a victim, what it means. And here's what I find. That when I am a victim, when I am full of self, self-seeking self and self-pity, you know what I can do? I can work the 12-step program in everyone around his life beautifully. <laughs> it's wonderful. I've got answers for them. I can tell them what they need to do and when they need to come and how they need to do it. I can do all those things. You know what I can't do? is work the 12 steps in my life. Because it's not my problem. See, if I don't have a problem, I can't work them in my life. And as long as these people are persecuting me out here, it's their problem. It's their problem. In fact, uh, the first thing we did is I took my eight-step list and I was take, I took the top 15 people on the eight-step list and I was supposed to write down on the list the top the people who persecuted me the majority of my life. And 13 of those 15 were my primary persecutors. You know what a persecutor is? It's that person who makes you, your life miserable. If they would just understand you. If they would just lead you on. If they would just act differently, your life would be better. If they would just do things differently. If they would talk differently. If they would respect me. If they would love me. If they would give me money. If they would do anything. Here's who they were. God. He let my, my grandmother die. He let my dad die of cancer. He let my first girlfriend leave me. I had four or five such good real things that God had really hacked me off about. And I knew he was out to get me. He, did, he let my mom beat me at 13. I mean, he did all that. It was my mother, my father, my brother, my sister-in-law, my sister, my brother-in-law, my wife, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my two children, my Aunt Lassie, and a girl at work named Betty Jo. <laughs> 21 years worth of Betty Jo. Those were the people. Those were the people. Those were the people. And honestly, I had a wonderful plan for their life. It was not a kind plan or a compassionate plan, but it was a plan. And as long as I focused on that, guess what I did not have to do? Look at me. See, the last thing I want to do is look at me. The last thing. The last thing. So that's what we did. We looked at me. That's what inventory is about, fourth and fifth. That's what sixth and seventh is about. Eighth and ninth. Tenth is about. Eleventh is about. Thirds about. <laughs> and so what I would suggest is that, that what happened is I started looking at the prices I paid. And what I've had to do in my recovery is to say, okay, here's my actions. Here's what's happening. Here's the price I'm paying. And then it becomes a choice. Do I want to keep paying that price or not? It's that simple. And if I want to pay the price today, then I guess I have to go there today. If I don't want to pay the price today, I don't want to go there today. And, and I think that was back, back to Dan, our question at dinner. You know, how do you deal with the day and the problems? It's just, do I want to go there? Do I want to go there or not? And what I'm learning today is that I don't want to go there as much as I used to. I don't know if that's age or what, but it's just I don't want to go there anymore. It's just too painful. And I would suggest that, that what, we've had to, what I've had to do is to look at my behavior in a six and seventh step model. You know, if this is my behavior and this is what I'm doing and these are my defects, do I want to choose to go there again? And if not, I'm going to say, God, I humbly ask you to remove this from me because I don't know how. You see, I think for me the seventh step is simply in a culmination of trying to make perfect the sixth step and I can't do it. You know, if I can't work the sixth step, I have to look at the seventh. If I can't say I'm going to give you all my defects, you know why I can't give them up? They define me. They define me as I know me. And until I can have enough faith and hope in this program and hear you tell me how your life is changing and how you're living without pride, greed, lust, embassy, uh, 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 sloth, jealousy, all these things that control your life and how you're letting go pieces at a time, until I have that faith coming to believe in the second step manner, I can't let it go either. I want to tell you about uh, my last two years of drinking. seems like late in the story to tell you about that, but it's very important. You see, I drank for 22 years. The last two years I drank very, very secretly. I drank very, very privately. I drank in a six foot by seven foot bathroom. Let me tell you about my bathroom. Had a toilet in it, had a tub, had a tub enclosure, had an exhaust fan, had a louver door, a little magazine rack. It was a nice bathroom. <laughs> As bathrooms go. And it was the only place in my world that I felt safe. 
That was it. So I'd take my beer, my wine, my liquor in there. I'd hide it in my pockets and I would hide it under my magazine rack and I'd go in and I'd turn on my exhaust fan. I was a closet smoker for five years. Nobody knew I was smoking, right? And so I would take out my cigarettes and I would smoke my cigarettes with my exhaust fan on and drink my magazine, read my magazines and drink my alcohol and just have a ball. How much better could you want? You know what I'm saying? How much better could you want? A beautiful day like today, you know what I'd be doing by now? Because I'd start drinking about 8 or 8.30 as soon as it came to from Friday night. I'd start drink- I lived on a, ru- uh, on a lake with a, with a boat, and, and I, would, uh, do- I knew exactly in that lake where it was 25 feet of water. I knew exactly where I was going to go with that boat, and I was going to drown myself. And I had all the details worked out. I worked on them just a tremendous amount of details. I wasn't going to do it today, but I was next Saturday. When I started this process, it was going to be soon. Then it was going to be this fall. Then it was going to be this summer. Then it's going to be in two weeks or next month. And then it became next Saturday. I never got to that day, thank God. But see, the only answer I had, it was very peaceful. It wasn't horrible. But I had to be fine. You know, I had to be like an accident. I had uh, Rob, they had to, my anchor rope had to catch me. It had to be an accident because I had to get double indemnity on my life insurance. I mean, I had to have people in this. No, I was okay. You know, it's fine. I'm just fine. I was a sick human being. So I so I didn't know that. I thought it was bad. But I was sick. And so I think the thing for me in coming to, going to treatment and getting out, I'll never forget the last day Claire said to me, she said, David, she said, you got to promise me one thing. I said, what's that? She said, you got to promise me you'll go home and enjoy your family, not fix your family. And I said, of course, I'll be glad to. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be fine. <laughs> now let me tell you about my family. 17-year-old son, 225-pound tackle on the football team, 6'5". He had been threatening to commit suicide for the last six months. He was busting holes in the walls of our home with his fist. He was busting windshields of cars out from the inside out with his fist. A very angry, violent young man. Um, he also, by the way, made good grades. Isn't that interesting? I'll talk about that in just a minute. Our son, Scott, at that time was 13. He was our runner. Scott was the kind of guy that you, you never missed him because he was never there. And he'd pick up underwear and leave again. I don't know where the guy stayed. We don't know where he ate. Uh, if he came in, you know, the rule in our house was, ye who yelled the loudest and the longest won. Well, David was in there refereeing the deal, and Scott was running from the deal. He got on his bike, and he would leave and go stay with Todd and Bill and, and John. And I, We don't know where he stayed. But he would go to get out of it. That's what it was. That's what our life was. And I'm supposed to enjoy them. You know what I realized on the way home? As I didn't know how. So you know what I did? I bought a 10,000 joke book by Milton Berle. I still got it in the trunk of my car if anybody wants to borrow. It's about this thick. I would get a better joke book than Milton Berle said. His jokes are not very funny. And I would, on the way home from work, I would learn three or four jokes. I'd have them on the front seat of my car, and at the, at the stoplights, I would flip over and read a couple. Oh, this is a good one. I would catch it. I'd go into my house, and I'd say, Good afternoon, David Scott. Good to see you. They're in doing homework or whatever. And I'd go, dun 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 How about this one? And I'd throw them a joke. And they looked at me in utter amazement. You know how we laughed in our house? It was he, he, he. You know what a he, he, he laugh is? It's not a belly laugh. You laugh right till here, but you don't want to laugh full belly because you give up control of your body. And then if the shoe, next shoe, fall, shoe falls and somebody gets angry, what are you going to do? So everybody was he, he, he. That's cute. And we couldn't laugh. So I would, they would look at me and they wouldn't laugh at my jokes. So I said, well, what about this one? Boom, second one, third one. I said, okay, I'm going to go in the back. I'm going to go change my clothes. I'm going to practice. I'll be back. So I'd go in my bedroom and, and practice real loudly. I'd say these jokes over and over real loudly. And I'd change them up a little bit. It was, uh, it was an interesting situation. And uh, I'd come back out and I'd say, what about this? Boom. Well, after a while, they started laughing. But they weren't laughing at my jokes. They were laughing at me trying to tell those jokes. But you know what we did? We laughed. It broke some ice. I don't know if you know what I'm saying. We had to have something to break the ice of all this pain, all this fear, all this anger. And so we went through that. I was home just a few days and my son, uh, David, was playing a TV in stereo wide open, literally at 4.30 on Monday morning. I had to go to work. I was frightened. And so I got out of bed. He woke me up. And I went in and in my best treatment motif, I said to him, David, I need for you to cut the TV down. I'm feeling very frightened right now. And I, and I, I need for you to cut the TV down. Would you do that? And he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to cut it down and you can't make me. And I said, and he's laying on this sofa. I said, no, David, let me explain my feelings to you. I don't think you understand my feelings. My feelings are that I'm feeling very frightened right now and I'm feeling very, very uh, anxious about going to work and I'm tired. And, and, and I need for you to cut the TV down. Well, he jumps up and I'm looking up at him like this. He comes over to me and he starts punching me in the chest. 
And he had his nose about that far from my face. He said, I'm not going to cut it down and you can't make me. Well, I lost my treatment motif at that point. <laughs> and I started punching him back. You see, what I realized at that moment is I realized this guy's I've been gone for three months. This guy's taking control of my house. That's what's happening here. This guy's taking control of my house. I've got to take it back. It's called bondage to self. That's what it looks like. And here's what it sounds like. I'm not going to cut it down and you can't make me. And you know what I sounded like? It's my TV. It's my sofa that you're laying on. Those clothes on your back, I bought for you. That's what it's called. That's how it sounds. Bondage to self. And I'm not, you know, if you're going to cut it down and boing, boing, boing. And you know what he did? He yelled at me as loud as anybody has ever yelled at me. And I've been out of treatment 93 days. He said, he said to me, you alcoholic, you've destroyed my life. Get out of it. He used some profanity, which I won't use from this podium. And he was that far from me when he yelled it. And I don't know why I did not hit him. But I think I do. My, my sponsor and my counselor asked me to pray for each of my family members every day. What I wanted for me to pray that for them. And I think that's an important prayer. It takes a lot of the sting out of the relationship to pray for people. And so what I did is I walked away. Started crying. And then I finally decided I would call my sponsor. It was quarter or five in the morning. I said, good morning. Did I wake you up? <laughs> Oh, no, I, wake him up. I said, you know what, my, my son just called me. <laughs> he said, what? I said, an alcoholic. <laughs> he said real quietly, well, aren't you? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, he called you what you are. I said, okay, but you know, he was punching me in the chest. He was punching, he was yelling at me. And he said, were you punching him in the chest and yelling at him? I said, yeah, but he provoked me. That's not a good ver verb to use with my sponsor. He said, uh, well, what do you think David is right now? Is he still in the house? I said, yeah, he's in the den. He's playing the stereo just as loud, loud as he ever had. He said, I want you to go in there. Now, I'm on the phone. It's you know, 5 o'clock in the morning. He said, I want you to go in there and say, David, I'm very sorry I yelled at you. I'll try not to do that again. And he said, then when you say that, I want you to say, David, may I have permission to hug you? Oh, okay. Thank you, Keith. Oh, I am. Hmm. Hmm. I am so sorry I woke you up this morning. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hope you can go back to sleep. Yeah. Have a, have a good day, buddy. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you being there for me. Okay. <laughs> Hug him. <laughs> Hug him. You know how to handle stuff like that, don't you? Find it yourself. You don't, wouldn't speak to him. Wouldn't give him, as I said just a minute ago, I would not look at him. I will show him who's in charge here. You see? That's how I'm going to do it. So I got a shower and went to work. I was the first one there. It's about 520. <laughs> Workplace, the first day back after nine, uh, 90 days in treatment, is not a fun place when you're the only one there. Because your thinking starts doing this. <laughs> And here's what happened to me. A ball of, of whatever it was, pain, hit me in my gut right here. And you know what I realized? And I don't know why I realized this, but I realized if I did not go to do what my sponsor suggested, that I was going to have to drink the vodka that I stole from the chairman of the board's liquor locker, and I knew how to do that. I've done that for several years. And fill it back up with water. I'd have to do that. And so I went home. I don't know why. And my son, it was just at daybreak. Uh, he was pacing out by the lake and I went over to him and he was so angry and I said to him, David, I'm so sorry I yelled at you. I'll try not to do that again. And he looked at me like I was a perfect stranger. And in fact, I was. In fact, I was. And I said, may I have permission to hug you? And he went, what? <laughs> I said, can I hug you? Oh, yeah. It's like this podium. Well, I, I put my arm around him. I didn't touch him. I just put my arm around him like this. Just never touched him. And I closed my eyes and I was thinking, my sponsor is full of bull. <laughs> you know, if you think, he gave, I said those lines he gave me. Now what am I going to do? I'm going to put my tail between my legs, get in my car. My son's got control of my house forever. Bonish yourself. And just the second I started to let that 16, 17-year-old go, guess what he did? He grabbed me and he hugged me and he wept. 
And he said, please forgive me. Please forgive me for what I said to you this morning. I am so sorry. He said, I am so proud of you for what you're trying to do with your life there. I want to support you and I love you. You know what I could say to him? That I loved him. And I could also say to him that for the last 17 and a half years, I am so sorry that you've lived in a home here that I've prepared and have tried to help build. And that in that home, you have never known me one minute of one hour of one day of one month of one year without alcohol or drugs in my body. I'm very sorry. And I told him I was laying on the ground at 13. I did not plan it that way. See, I did not plan on the ground at 13 about how I was going to change my life and just make this whole plan for my life. I did not plan on urinating on myself in my easy chair in my den. Passed out. I didn't plan on that. That wasn't part of my plan. I didn't say I'm going to grow up and do those things. But that's what happened to me. And we stood there and we hugged. And I told him, to be honest with him, that my sponsor suggested I do that. He said he would like to call him. I said, that's fine. So we went back in. <laughs> I was 6.15 now, I guess. <laughs> oh, see, if I had those early recovery, but boy, I had some long nights. I was <laughs> at 7 o'clock in the morning. We had had a full agenda. <laughs> and this was like 6.15. And so I called you and said, hey, Keith, did I wake you up? <laughs> and uh, David thanked him for what he was doing in my life. And then he started to leave. And I said, well, Keith, I've got to go to work now. Real, for real. He said, no, I want you to stay on the phone a minute. And then here's what he told me. He said, I want you from this moment forward to go forward in your life and sponsor your children. I don't want you to parent them again. He said, your parenting is killing them. Because you're so filled with this bondage yourself. And what you're trying to do is invoke that on them. He said, you need to just let them go. I said, what do you mean I need to sponsor them? He said, you don't give them any advice until they ask you for it. And then you only give them your experience. I said, but they'll never ask me. They don't want to know what I've got to say. They won't listen to me. He said, isn't that wonderful? That part of your life's over. <laughs> and for about two seconds, it felt pretty good. I said, what do you mean? He said, you just let them be. He said, let them be. You see, what my bondage to self, this is so, the, my, bond, my bondage to self has ripped shreds of dignity from my children and from the people I care about. Just a bit at a time. Just a bit at a time. Until there's no dignity left. And that's called insanity. <laughs> that's called insanity. Of the life, of the lifestyle, of the home. And so what I had to do was let them go. And that was a, still is the hardest thing in the world to do. It's better now. I had to work with my children on developing solutions, options, and they're making those choices instead of me. I had to let them have their life. You see, I realize that as long as I'm in bondage to self, I play God. And as long as I do that, they don't need one. And my job is to get out so they can have one. And that's worked in their lives. Um, the other thing I want to share with you, four weeks after this day with my son David, I want to tell you how powerful this disease is. Uh, he was laying on the sofa. Now, let me tell you about his summer. This was in August. He had not been able to get off the sofa all summer. He could not try off a football his senior year. He could not. He was so depressed, he could not get off the sofa. He could not function. He did not have a job. He laid all day and slept on the sofa. He stayed up all night. It was a real bizarre time. He was very angry, knocking holes in the house. It was crazy. Crazy. And any time you push it, he threatens suicide. And... Uh, he looked at me. He rolled over. This was like two days before school started. I'll never forget this moment. I hope I don't. He said, Dad, I'm not going to be able to be valedictorian this year. He said, he was ranked third in his class academically. He said, I've got this course and that course, and I'm not going to be able to pull my grade point average. And I know these two people are going to do well and da-da-da-da-da. He said, I am so sorry I've let you down. Now, think about that. He can't function. He can't get out of the house. And he's worried about valedictorian? And then I thought back, sitting in that den with him. I thought, well, how did this happen? And you know how it happened? When he got into the first grade and the second grade and the third grade, you know when he got to the third grade and got his first A, Bs, and Cs? You know what I did out of bondage to myself? I said to him, hey, I want you to do well, son. And I said, I want you to do well. But you know what I wanted? I wanted, I wanted him to do well so I would look good. You see, if he did well in school, then I breeded brilliance. If he did bad, I, was, I breeded dumbness. That was all about me, not about him. And so what I said is, I'll give you $10 for every A, I'll give you $5 for every B, and you pay me for C's and D's. 
And I said, we'll do that. Every time you bring your report card home, I come to me and I'll bring my checkbook out and, and we'll do this stuff. And, and boy, it was a real nice time when, check, when report cards came out. We had a party. I did. They didn't. And I gave them their checks and they were so excited and I was so excited. And all I did was to show them in my bondage to myself that their only importance to me was that the, if they were only important to me if they made good grades. And so he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry I've let you down. And I said, son, it's okay. And what I realized at that moment is I had him in bondage to himself. And I had to let that go. And I, had, I said to him, I said, I never, ever want to see a report, your report card again. That's totally your business. I trust you. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I, I never want to see it again. That's totally your business. I trust that you will do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. If you want to go to college, great. I'll support you. But it's not conditional on your making A's. If you want to go to college, you do what you need to do. If you can get through college and they'll give you a degree, I'll help you. And he looked at me and he said, what? He got real angry. And he fell off the sofa onto the floor. True story. He was 17, 225-pound tackle on the football team. And he turned on his back and he started kicking with his hands and his feet. He said, you can't do that. You can't do that. What will grandmother thinking? What will grandmother thinking? What will mother thinking? What will my brother thinking? What will my grandmother? And he named every member of his family. What will they think of me? And I got out of my chair and I went over and I crawled down on the floor with that boy. He was a boy. And I held him and we cried. And I said, it's okay. They love you just like I do. And I'm so sorry. To sponsor him, I never had to see his report card again. I knew that. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I even sneaked around. Uh, Did you see David's report card? <laughs> uh, just check it. Is he okay? Oh, just, just check it. Just check it. But for his senior year, I didn't see it. His first two years at University of North Carolina, I did not see it. And uh, he did well, I guess. But then he came to me in his sophomore year and he said, Dad, and he handed me an envelope. He said, Dad, I want you to look at this. I said, what is this? He said, these are my grades for the first two years. I want you to see these. And I said, no, wait a minute, we've been through this. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah. I said, well, why do you want me to see them? And then this is what he said. He said, Dad, I want you to help me celebrate my accomplishments. You see, that's a different perspective. See, that's freedom from bondage of self for me. So this program for me is about trying to free myself from bondage itself. I'll give you another example. I was uh, about three years sober. My sister called me and she said, David, I want you to be in my, my wedding. And I said, sure, I thought enough, sure, or something. She said, I want you to sing in my wedding. I said, of what? <laughs> she said, yeah, I want you to sing. I said, I don't sing that well. She said, well, I'm going to send you a tape and, and sheet music. And, and she said, and, and, you know, if you'll sing a duet, I want you to sing one part of duet. I said, not a problem. You know, I can, I'll try so I got this tape. It was Lee Greenwood and Barbara Streisand to me or something. And I was going around with people singing uh, Lee Greenwood. Man, I was I was starting to grow a beard. I mean, I was, I was so, to me you know, from light to light, and people would sit there at the light, and I just to me. And I was just came that October day. I had to go and, and, and sing this at the wedding rehearsal. It was in the it was Friday night, you know. And there's just a few people in the church, my family, and, and I'm up there, and they had the pianist playing, and. And I came out, and I had to start the song, and the, and the accompanist was there, the duet member. And, and anyway, I opened my mouth, and this break came out. I've never heard this note in my life. I had never heard that note. I don't think they make a note like that. I don't think they've ever seen a note like that. And this ball of fear, of course, I was very frightened, you know, that fear of, ooh. And, I, and then this hit me. And you know what I thought? I've got to do this again tomorrow with this place full. And here's what I started to do. Bondage to self took over. And here's what happened through the afternoon and evening that night. It's that fear, thinking. At dinner, you know, have you ever been at a dinner and people are saying and talking to you and you're going, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you, I'm fine. You have no idea what they're saying. No idea. See, I'm so into bondage of self. I'm so into thinking myself, my thinking. You know, it's got me real busy. I can't listen to them. My thinking's got me busy. I don't have time for their thoughts. And I've agreed to some interesting things like that. Oh, yeah, I'll be glad. Oh, you want to help me move? That's wonderful, David. No, I <laughs> I went home, went to bed, and I got up. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't sleep. Had a little dysentery, a little upset stomach. You know how the typical fear goes. A little tension right up here in the back, you know, neck. You know, it's a little tension, a little cricking of the neck, and I tossed and tumbled. Finally, I got up with my big book about six o'clock, my big, big book, and I went. I was going to do my prayer meditation. I was going to be very spiritual that day because I was singing a wedding. <laughs> and I started thinking. You see, what I had already started thinking is if I sing in this wedding real well. Then, then they'll probably want me for other weddings. There'll be people in the audience. <laughs> Wedding Music Incorporated. I could see it coming. 
So I got to do real well today, you know. And probably somebody's there with a recording contract. Go through that too. <laughs> So I'm sitting here on my big book, my big, big book, and, uh, and I'm, you know, praying and meditating. Real, it was a real spiritual moment, folks. And here's what I did. Gail, I woke up with a real sore throat this morning. I don't think I can sing in your wedding today. I said, oh, and I can't do that to her. Just get spiritual again. It's real spiritual. And then I practiced again. Gail, this is your brother David. Oh, I woke up with a real sore throat. That girl's going to have to sing a solo today. I said, oh, I can't do that. I got spiritual again. You know, make me a, a river or path of thy peace. And I was meditating. And I laid my books down. You know what I did? What I'd done for 40 years. I went to my bathroom to get sick. You see, when I can't face reality in my life, and when I'm so much in bondage to myself, you know what I do? I give myself permission to drop out of life. And I get sick. I've had stomach aches and headaches and back aches and flus and viruses and uh, uh, lower back pain, upper back pain, uh, elbow joint. I've had that a lot. Just, you know, those types of things. Amazing. Amazing the sicknesses. Because I couldn't face the reality. And I was in bondage to myself. And I went to the bathroom to get sick and I took my glasses off because I always did this when I was on a hangover morning. I would try to look sick before I called in sick. I don't feel I'll ever practice that way. I'll tell you. Anita, this is David. Yeah, I got a virus this morning. I can't come in. And she'd say, oh, you sound terrible. Don't you come in and give us all of that? And I'd go, yes. And about two seconds later, I'd feel guilty because I knew I lied. Yeah. But I went in the bathroom that morning to look sick before I called my sister at 6.30 to wake her up and tell her I couldn't sing in her wedding. As if this was the most important thing in her day today. Catch the bondage yourself. You follow what I'm saying? And I looked at my mirror and I was getting sick and I was going, Gail, I can't sing in your wedding. And I glanced up and my sponsor had me write on my mirror when I was first sober, David, you're wrong, in the upper left hand corner. <laughs> I never understood why. In fact, I debated that a little bit. He said, no, you need to learn how to be wrong. He said, you don't know how to be wrong. And I glanced up and saw David, you're wrong. And I, was, I took a step back and I really did. I did a 10-step inventory, kind of a spot inventory. I said, my mother's in another town asleep. My sister's asleep. My, my family's asleep. There's no human being in the world making me afraid but me. That's powerful information. Because I always thought it was them, those persecutors. But my bondage itself is my fear, you see. And what I was able to say is, thank God I'm wrong right now, because if I was right right now, I'd have to live this way the rest of my life. But because I can be wrong, I can move on. So I went back, and, and I failed to say this in some uh, sharing about three weeks ago, and somebody said, what happened to the wedding? <laughs> you know what I did? I decided I would go sing to my sister. You see, she did not think I was Lee Greenwood. I did. She knew exactly who I was, David, and that's who she asked to sing in her wedding. And so I went and I sang to my sister. You see, when I'm in bondage to self, and I really did, I looked at her face, I sang to her, I didn't care if anybody else heard it or not. She asked me to be of service to her on this special day. What a privilege. You see, I have given up the privilege of service because of my bondage to self. And I think this whole program, the 12 Steps, the whole last step is about having a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps so that I can take this message, can live these principles in all my life, but can take this message to other people. And you know how I take it? It's attraction, not promotion. It's by being of service. You know. Somebody said the first five steps are about learning who I am. The f uh, second five, six through ten is about accepting who I am. And, and uh, 11 and 12 is about forgetting who I am. You know, that's an important part, I think. Forgetting. I want to share with you that, that this whole process with my mother, I want to go back to that. I want to leave you on the ground at 13 when she was kicking me. Uh, I got into treatment. I was very angry with her, very angry with her. Uh, I had tried to show her. You know what I was going to show my mother? That I didn't need her. It's an interesting thing. 
You see, when I got into treatment, I was having problems, as I said, with my second son, Scott. It wasn't working out. My first son and I had started over in that, from that morning that we had that occasion in the backyard to, to now. He got into treatment three months later after going. He just finally came and said, what, should, what do you suggest? I said, well, I went to treatment. Why don't you look at it? And he went to, to get some help. He got into a, ACOA and, and Al-Anon. He uh, had a sponsor. He, he just did a good job in his life. We went to a lot of open A meetings together his senior year in high school. We had a good time. My youngest son, we did not have a good time. It was pretty, pretty serious. And so this whole concept of, of uh, how to have a relationship. And I was talking to my sponsor one night, and he said something, because I was praying for my mother, because I'd been suggested that I do. But he said something that really hacked me off, and I didn't think was fair. Okay? He said, David, until you work on the relationship with your parents, your relationship with your children will be similar. I didn't like that. I didn't like that at all. I didn't think that was fair because of what they did to me. He said, but until you deal with that, you will not be able, they will not have the relationship you want with you. And so I had to get serious about this thing with my mom. I went to treatment. I was so angry. And about the third day there, my counselor, she said to me, she said, why are you so angry? It was in group. You know how the group is. She said, why are you so angry? And I said, me? I'm not angry. I'm fine. <laughs> Just have to be in detox center. You know. And she said, what are you angry with? And, you know, that started pushing me. I said, I'm angry with my mother. And she said, why? And I said, well, here's what happened at 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 and 19 and 20 and 21. I knew every detail of what she did to me, said to me, didn't say to me, didn't do to me and did to me. Every detail. I had them right here, right here in my fist and in my mind. I carried them every day. And she said, David, let me ask you a question. Uh, uh, what do you think your mother had for uh, uh, dinner last night? I said, I don't know. Claire, I was here in detox. She said, well, how far is she from here? I said, about 600 miles. She said, well, what, do you, what would you have wanted if you'd been at her house? I said, I wanted fried chicken, potato salad, green beans, uh, a roll, uh, iced tea, lemon meringue pie. She said, what did you have here in detox, David, for dinner last night? I said, well, Claire, I wasn't too hungry. I had a little upset stomach, you know, trying to work through some things in my life and had a little roll and a little tea. She said, well, David, how much sleep do you think your mother got last night? I said, I don't know. She said, well, take a guess. I said, seven hours. She said, David, how much sleep did you get last night? I said, I Claire, I was trying to deal with a few things, you know, trying to think through my life, you know, being in detox for about three days. And I wanted to smoke, so I had to get out of my bed and go to the day room and smoke. And I said, I, about an hour and a half. She said, what do you think your mother had for breakfast? I don't know. She said, well, take a guess. I said, okay, uh, uh, eggs over easy, grits, sausage, toast, strawberry jelly, orange juice, and coffee. She said, David, what did you have for breakfast here in detox? I said, well, I wasn't too hungry, Claire. I was just a little upset. You know, I just... I had to think, and I smoked too much last night, and my chest was a little inflamed, you know. <clears throat> and I was hacking a little bit. I just didn't feel like eating. She said, David, where do you think your mother is right now? It's like 9.45 in the morning. I said, well, my mother's 69. She's retired. She's probably talking to a friend, uh, visiting with a friend. Uh, probably she's watching a soap opera or a game show. I, that's probably what she's doing. She said, David, where are you right now? Now, for the first time in my life, do you know what I did? I stopped. I don't you know what I mean. I stopped. You see, I've been a human doing all my life. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was doing it. I've never been a human being. The first moment of being a human being experience I ever had was sitting in these meetings where I saw people who I thought were about to fall asleep, who I understand now were serene and at peace. Being. You know? Just being. I never, I never experienced that. And so I stopped and I said, I'm sitting in a damn treatment center trying to kill myself. You know what she said? She didn't say, well, I'm sorry about that. She, she said, well, it seems to me your mother's life's going along pretty well. <laughs> and it seems to me you're trying to kill yourself. She said, you know what? Your mother doesn't even know you're fighting her. I said, of course she knows I'm fighting her. You know, if you're fighting somebody and they don't know you're fighting them, there can't be a fight. She said, have you ever walked to her and taken her by the blouse and pulled her face to your face and said, Mother, every day the rest of your life, I'm just going to show you. I said, no, I've never done that. She said, then she does not know. And the fight you're fighting is between your two ears. I didn't like that. <laughs> she asked me to pray for my mom. Would I do that? And she said, if I did not have to leave, I'd have to admit I'm powerless over alcohol and my life's unmanageable. 
I have to admit that I'm powerless over my mother, that my life's unmanageable regarding that relationship. I had to admit that I was powerless over what had happened to me in that relationship, that my life had become unmanageable. I had to let go of those things. And if I didn't choose to do that, I had to leave because she or no other human being could help me and that I would drink again. You know, I didn't have anywhere to go. My family sent me off for the you know, 28 day wander, be fixed, come home, don't come home until you're fixed. And I didn't have anywhere to go at three days. So I stayed and I prayed for my mom. And then she said, did you pray for her? And I said, yes. She said, will you pray for her every day for the next two weeks? I told her I could. And so nothing really happened except I prayed every day. And then in two weeks, you know what she said? Did you pray for her every day for the, the, the last two weeks? I said, yeah. She said, will you do it for the next two weeks? I was there three months, two weeks at a time. And the last thing she said after don't fix your family, enjoy them, she said, pray for your mother every day. It's important. Well, for the first year and a half in recovery, I did that. I did not want to see my mother. Uh, we live 65 miles apart. I saw her two half days a year, Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day, sometimes not even Thanksgiving. I did not want to see her. I did not call her. I did not want to go around her. And uh, I gone on with my life. I was going to prove to her that I could not I could live without her. That was the whole proof. That was what I was going to show her. And in the process, I was killing myself, by the way. Didn't know that. And so finally, my sponsor, we started working on the eight-step list. You know what he told me when we worked on the eight-step list? Because we'd worked on six and seven. He said, you've got to accept the acceptance that God gives you. That's the only way you're going to let go of these defects. If you don't feel accepted, you're going to keep trying to use them. Then we got to step eight. He said, he said, I want you to start acting differently so people will treat you differently. I said, what do you mean? He said, I want you to start acting like an adult. So people will stop treating you like a child. I didn't like that either. And he said, I said, what does that mean? He said, I want you to write your mother. I said, I don't have anything to say to her. He said, that's not the point. She lives 65 miles away. When's the last time you talked to her? I said, about eight months ago. He said, I want you to write her. I said, well, what do I say? He said, I want you to say, dear mom, thinking of you, David. I said, but I'm thinking bad thoughts. <laughs> he said, that's okay. She won't know that. She'll think you're thinking good thoughts because she doesn't know you're fighting. I said, okay. So I went and I had to buy a funny card from Actors Drugstore, a little smiley face, a little sun face. So I bought that and put, dear mom, thank you for your time. I mailed it. And about three weeks later, he said, did you, did you hear from your mother? I said, no. He said, well, mail her another card. I said, but she didn't write me back. He said, well, mail her another card. I said, what do I say? He said, say the same thing. Dear mom, thinking of you, David. You know what happened? I got a letter back. And you know what she said? Dear David, thank you so much for letting me know that you're thinking of me every day. I didn't say that. Well, she sent me this little cartoon out of the paper on Donald Duck, and I talked like Donald Duck, so that was cute. So I wrote her back. You know what she did? She wrote me back. You know what I did? I wrote her back. It's funny how things work that way. And then I called her. I said, why don't you come down and visit? And so she came to Febble to visit. My sister brought her down. She's 72 at this time. And she walked in. Such an important point. She walked in. She sat on the end of the sofa about as far as we are apart here, you and I deal. And basically, she looked at us, and she said, when I was six years old, I sat in my great-grandmother Honeycutt's lap, and she ran her fingers through my red hair and told me what a beautiful girl I was and what a nice person I was. And everything within me wanted to say, Mom, I've heard that dumb story 250 times. We're here to visit. And I, something stopped me. So I think praying for her stopped me. Freedom from bondage of self. And what I was able to see in my mother was that she was absolutely terrorized. She did not know what to say to her own two children. And do you know what I could see? I saw in her, I saw my fear in her. <laughs> you see, I could see that for the first time. You see, I thought my mom was a mean woman. And what I realized that morning is my mother was a frightened woman. Very terrorized. So we continued to write and call and visit. When I was four years sober, I asked her to go on a trip. We'd never been on a trip together. My dad had died about eight years before. And uh, she was, uh, you know, I was just wanting to get her out of town. So we went up to see the cherry blossoms here in Washington, close to here. And we're driving up 95. And you know what she said to me? She said, David, do you know how it feels to be terrorized as a child? I said, yeah, I do. She said, well, I burned, I was 10 years old. I burned a biscuit in the oven and my dad took a tobacco stick and beat me. She said, I was scared to death. I wasn't enough and I could never please him. And I told her, I said, Mom, when I broke those eggs at 13, I, I want to apologize to you because I didn't listen. You asked me not to ride my bike. I pretended I didn't hear you. But my amends is I did hear you and I still rode the bike and I broke those eggs. And I'm very sorry. And this is the time she was kicking me that day. It was a very bad day in my life. And she stopped me and she said, David, please don't. She said, there has not been a day in the last 38 years of my life that I have not thought about that incident with tremendous shame and tremendous guilt. Can you ever forgive me? What I realized that moment is that my mother had paid a greater price than I had paid. But my bondage itself would not let me see that. See? It would not let me see that. My price was better. 
You see, the thing I have to understand is in resentments and self-pity. That the resentments, and I, after I did my resentments on my fourth step, on page 67 it says, what part in the resentment did I have? I didn't like that page. Because for me, the act caused the resentment. I never separated the act, beating, kicking from the resentment I had for her. And what I understand is if, I don't, if my part is not the resentment, I am screwed. Because I can never let it go. If it's somebody else caused the resentment, then I am in real bad shape in recovery. But what I have to understand is the act happened. The act happened. And I think as sexual abuse, physical abuse, as a child, it's not the child's fault. You're children. You know, it's a child thing. I mean, it's an adult child thing. But from the moment the act ended, my part has been the resentment for 27 years. And if it's not my part, I have no ability to change or let go of that. And so my job is to let go of the resentment. You see, sitting in that car that day, I realized my mother paid a greater price than I paid. And I realized we both had paid enough. You know what I mean by paid enough? She's 72 years old. Or actually, she, yeah, she was 73. And I'm 44 years old. How much longer are we going to carry this hatchet from one and a half minutes of episode when I was 13? How much longer do I want to destroy my quality to burn my sunlight of the spirit? How, do I, how much longer do I want to do that? That's my choice. So I let it go. I prayed and I asked God for help. Now, let me tell you about my mom. She's 78 today. She's had open heart surgery. We've had the privilege of going through that with her and her uh, hip, uh, hip break a couple of years ago. But I go up and I visit her now. And we go to the Garner Senior Citizens Club for a lunch. We have 323 friends there. And, uh, and yeah, how you doing? How you doing? You remember Mrs. Jones? Oh, yeah, how you Mrs. Jones? Good to see you. And I went, about, about a year and a half ago, I went to see my mom one night. And I said, Mom, how's it going? You making new friends at the Senior Citizens Club? And she said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, and she turned red. And she blushed. She started giggling. I said, what's his name? <laughs> and she said, Lawrence. Oh, Lawrence, tell me about Lawrence. Well, she told me about his open heart surgery scar and his teeth, and she told me about all kinds of things. <laughs> I went to her. Uh, she said, are you upset with me? Oh, she was scared. I said, oh, no, I'll pray for you and Lawrence. I wish you well. You, you, I hope, wish you every happiness, Mother. You deserve it. The next morning I went to say goodbye and she sat up on the bed and she put her head on my shoulder and started crying. She said, thank you so much. I was so frightened you would not accept Lawrence. And she started crying. Now let me tell you something. At that moment, you know what? If it had not been for you, if it had not been for these 12 steps, you know what I would have done? I would have gone to my grave or her grave, never having experienced that moment of intimacy. You see, what I give up when I'm a victim is I give up the right and the ability to have an intimate relationship with my persecutors. Being here has been a privilege. I spoke here a few years ago. It's great to be back. So nice to see some folks I've seen before. Thank you for letting me share. Love you.